We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. Uh, Just a couple days back, I read an article by a man who spent several months studying a whole host of millionaires. I think his uh, grouping included about 250 millionaires, and he was studying their habits and uh, some of the things that made them rich and how they became successful. And he noted that a large percentage of millionaires that he studied uh, used to-do lists. Uh, But the thing that really caught my attention, he said, actually, there's actually a significant portion of the people that he interacted with that said that they also use a not-to-do list because they want to be productive, right? Many people use a a to-do list to help them be productive. But some of these people were realizing, actually, I may need that to-do list, but maybe even more important than that, I need like the not-to-do list. If I'm going to be focused and productive and succeed at what I'm trying to do, there are probably things I just kind of, this is not helping that mission. This is not helping that goal. So many of them used a not-to-do list to avoid wasting their precious time on things that would not contribute to those goals. If you want to be fruitful, productive, and profitable in anything, sometimes you need to focus actually on what not to do. There's something to that. And if you're a Christian, there are certain activities, and I think Scripture would even say relationships, that should be on your not-to-do list because of the toll that they will take on your spiritual productivity. If, If you're a Christian, this is really, really important. Christians often waste energy where it doesn't belong. And as you look at your time and energy, you only have so much of it. It's not unlimited. And if you put it in the wrong place, that's going to hinder you. In Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, Paul, who is Titus' mentor, if I could word it that way, gives him two items, two things for his not-to-do list. Okay, Titus, put these on your your not-to-do list. Don't spend your time here. Don't spend your energy here. Explaining that those two things will make him and the people that he's ministering to unfruitful. Spiritual fruitfulness is so important. In fact, In many ways, Titus, this little book, is all about this matter of fruitfulness. And way back up in chapter 2, at the beginning of it, he said, Teach what accords with healthy doctrine. Teach the people healthy truth. So that at the end of the day, that truth, that healthy doctrine, will help them devote themselves to good works. And then in chapter 3, we just see this repeated language of profitability and fruitfulness and devoting yourself to good works. Look with me at Titus chapter 3, verse 8. We have one of these verses where Paul focuses on that. It's where we left off last week. Paul explains to Titus that this saying, the last few verses, uh, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, the things that we looked at last week, so that those who have, been, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, these things, these teachings, and these things that you're supposed to teach the people, uh, they are excellent and they are profitable for people. And that's the goal. That God's people would live these profitable lives, these spiritually profitable lives where, where they're growing and they're, they're living this life of good works. That's the goal. According to verse 8, focus on the gospel Sound doctrine, healthy teaching causes God's people to devote themselves to good works and live profitable Christian lives. And then all of a sudden we get into verse 9, our text today, and it starts with a contrast to that. Paul says, but, okay, teach this healthy doctrine and, and teach people how to live based on that doctrine. But, let's talk about your not-to-do list. That's not going to help that. 
Because God wants you to be a fruitful Christian, you need to turn away from whatever hinders that. Look at verse 9. After saying, here's what helps people be profitable spiritually. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are what? Unprofitable and worthless. And then verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. So in these verses, we have two items for your not-to-do list. And these are given to Titus, who's helping lead all these churches on the island of Crete. I think these verses would be very relevant for anyone in spiritual leadership, but they're relevant for all of us in our everyday Christian life. So two items for your not-to-do list. Here's the first one. It's unfruitful discussions. Avoid unfruitful discussions. Look at back at verse 9. It starts, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Paul reminds Titus and the rest of us that there are actually many topics that you and I should avoid in our conversations and in our discussions. Like what? What kind of topics and discussions and interactions does God want you and I to avoid because they're unprofitable? They're not helping me go down this path of Christian growth and keeping my headspace where it needs to be. I think it's somewhat hard to be overly specific as to the, the, the types of conversations and topics that God wants uh, you to avoid because these topics come in all shapes and sizes. Verse 9 mentions four errors to avoid that were somewhat specific to the Cretan context in this New Testament early church context. But they do give us a good idea of the types of topics and conversations that we should avoid. So let's look at what the Cretans were told to avoid and see if we can't glean something from that. First on the list is foolish controversies. That seems pretty timeless, actually. These are speculative, ignorant, and inconsequential disputes. Typically, there's no great point of significance to these. And frankly, oftentimes, there's no clear answer. People are talking about something and they're debating something and they're in the middle of this controversy and... People have been talking about it for thousands and thousands of years and it's never been settled. And then he moves to genealogies. These would, uh, no doubt in this context, would would have been Jewish genealogies. There's nothing wrong with a good genealogy. Maybe you're really into that and you want to trace your ancestry and uh, see kind of where your grandparents came from and your roots. That's all fine and good. That's not what he's talking about here. These genealogies, uh, most scholars think probably included legends and myths about biblical characters. So big picture, the problem here is just a a step back from Scripture. Maybe you've got a a scriptural genealogy, and then all these myths and legends are filling that in. They They represented a departure from Scripture into a speculative, unknown realm. And Paul is telling Titus, like, listen, that's not helping anyone. What helps God's people is sound, healthy doctrine, the teaching of Scripture, Keep God's people focused there. And then dissensions. These would be heated arguments that can produce strife, causing friction between believers. And finally on the list, he has quarrels about the law, the Old Testament law. The Old Testament is very important. But it's possible to get caught up in the details that maybe don't apply to us or that would have been true for the Cretans. And each one of those topics, as you think about them, if you're someone who likes to study or if you're someone who likes to debate and and have these conversations, each one of those topics could represent a whole realm of study, 
a whole realm of knowledge. Each one of these requiring its own separate debate or discussion or unique answer. Uh, Perhaps they could require great study and conversation. And Paul just says, wrong. These topics all require the same response. What is that response? He says, avoid them. Built within the word that's translated avoid is, is the concept of going around. The word means to go around something so as to avoid it. Uh, for whatever reason, for me personally, I, I kind of just like roaming Canadian tire. Uh, maybe you don't like Canadian tire at all. I, I just sort of roam and just enjoy it for whatever reason, especially the really big Canadian tire there in South Common. And so I'll find myself there roaming around Canadian tire, and I, I've noticed that from time to time, uh, at least that Canadian tire has a credit card salesman working their way around the store and up the aisles and catching customers, trying to get them uh, to get the Canadian Tire credit card. Well, I already have a credit card. I like it. I'm not really in the market for a new one. I'm really pretty happy with what I've got. So what do you think uh, I do? I don't want to have that conversation. Like, I don't really want to get caught face-to-face talking with that guy or or that lady. What do you think I do when I see them rounding the corner sort of coming my way? Okay, I'm going over here. I don't really want to have that conversation. I'm going to tuck down this aisle. Not going there. Not worth my time. Not interested. And I'm trying to do that as inconspicuously as possible. But I'm giving that person a wide berth. And in like manner, there are many topics and conversations. It's just like, you know what? No, I'm not going there. I need to go around that one. And you should avoid those. And do you know why that is? There are many topics you should avoid because there are many topics unworthy of your time. Verse 9 says to avoid these, and here's the reason, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Certain topics and discussions, even though some people may really, really want to have them, simply aren't worth your time because they're not helpful. They're not profitable toward for you. They're not helping you live out your Christian life. They're just capturing your thoughts and your attention and your energy. And that's what's filling your mind when really something else should. Uh, You need to avoid those unfruitful discussions. During my university days, I always looked forward to Christmas break, summer break. Uh, You've been working really hard at school for four months or so, and the semester finally ends. And so my plan was, man, as soon as I'm free to go, my car's already loaded up. I'm hopping in it. I'm making a 12-hour trip home. And I would just make one stop. Six hours in, I would stop my vehicle, I'd get gas, I'd make a washroom break, I'm hopping on the road again, seeing if I can make a 12-hour trip in 10 and a half. And I found that traffic jams in big cities at rush hour could add hours to my trip. A a 10 or 12-hour trip could be 14 hours or 15 hours. And that's when I learned to really appreciate bypasses. What's a bypass? A bypass, it's just a road that is built specifically to go around a town or a city to provide mobility for traffic having no destinations in the city that's being bypassed. I don't need anything in that city. So why would I take all that time to go through it? Every time I approached a major city, I had two choices. Number one, I could drive right through it. I'll just go right up the middle of this city. I'll hit every light along the way. I may get distracted. I may stop here. I may stop there. I may hit rush hour traffic. Whatever the case may be, uh, I could do that. Or option number two, well, I just go around the city. I'll just take the ring road around it and I'll bypass all of that so that I'm efficient. And I get where I'm going in a timely 
manner. If I wanted to get somewhere in a timely fashion, why would I drive straight through a major city? I wouldn't. And that's the point. If you want to get somewhere and you want to be profitable in your Christian life, and and you want to go forward in your walk with God, and you want to grow, and you want to thrive, and you want to focus your time and energy on on, on the, the growth that God wants you to focus on and the people that God wants you to focus on and the relationships that God wants you to focus on and all the things that are really, really, really important. If you want to do all of that, why would you spend time on what doesn't matter and the conversations that are never going to change your life for the better spiritually? Because God wants you to be a fruitful Christian, you need to avoid unfruitful discussions. And as I think about this verse, a, a few points of application immediately come to mind. Uh, one would be our times of church discussion. Our church has regularly, regular opportunities to discuss God's word and the Bible. Uh, for example, uh, we often have something called table time after the service where we break into smaller groups and we focus and talk about the text that was just preached and meditate on that together in conversation and, and think through its implications and how we're going to apply it. Those times can be so good. As God's people chew on God's word together and fellowship on God's word together. We also have other times of Bible study. Uh, Maybe things that happen here kind of under the auspices of our church. uh, Ladies Bible study or men's Bible study. Or maybe just get together on your own. Kind of your private little thing with a few other Christians. I found that here or really frankly at any church. Some people have an amazing ability to take a really healthy and fruitful conversation and turn it into verse 9. It's like we're focused on God's word, and we're talking about what really matters, and someone could just derail that out there into no man's land, into what just doesn't matter. A couple of thoughts there. Please don't be that person. And I know I could do that, you could do that. But I challenge you, please don't be that person. And number two, if you see that that's happening in some discussion that you're having with people, please graciously and intentionally bring the conversation back to where it's fruitful and profitable for you and the people around you. Another application point that I think comes to mind in our world today, think about something like social media. Some of you aren't involved in that at all, and others of you would be, and um, that could be all fine and great. The things of verse 9, though, I think happen all the time on social media. I mean, probably just think back through all the things that you saw on social media about the pandemic and churches or whatever else. Or or think about the the things that happen. Uh, And you just read someone's post. And next thing you know, you find yourself reading the whole discussion. And you're just, your head's all wrapped up in this or that or whatever. And for some of you, defriending someone on social media might be helpful for you and actually a good application of this text because you keep hopping on and next thing you know, your mind's taken up with that. Well, God wants your mind somewhere else. He wants you focused on being a profitable, growing Christian, living out your Christian life with other people, exercising good works. You've got to get out of that space of unfruitfulness. If you put unfruitful discussions on your not-to-do list, you'll protect your spiritual profitability. Well, there's also a second item for your not-to-do list, and that is divisive people. Verses 10 and 11, reject divisive people, Paul says. Look at these verses, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. In summary, when a person unbiblically creates division, and that happens, unfortunately, it may come to the point where you actually have to be the one that creates division, biblically, between you and that person. If you're going to be a divisive person, then I actually have to, in some way, shape, or form, biblically divide from you. Before we jump into verses 10 and 11, you should know, I think, that these verses, many people believe, are talking about church discipline. And I think as you look at them, you could see why that's often thought. And uh, I actually think that's a very real possibility that when we talk about this matter of church discipline, that these verses seem to speak to that matter at least to some degree. However, I think that limiting this text uh, specifically to situations of church discipline might be a bit too narrow. These verses could just as easily be talking about how we relate uh, to to a divisive person, whether they go to our church or it would be another Christian that we're acquainted with who maybe doesn't go to our church, or, or something like that. So back to the point that he's getting at. You need to reject divisive people. Let's talk about that. Uh, some will unbiblically create division. Verse 10 begins, As for a person who stirs up division. There are and there will be people who do that in God's church. You realize that. I mean, there will be those people. And it's wrong, it's unfortunate, but it's real. And it seems likely, as Paul talks about this, that he may have the false teachers in mind that he spoke of. You remember back in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, and he's warning Titus and the Cretans about these false teachers, and they're causing all kinds of problems with both their doctrine and their behavior. Not only was their teaching unbiblical, and they had some very dangerous doctrine, it would seem, Uh, that was divisive, their behavior was too. We read that they were upsetting whole households. The problem isn't actually always theology. Sometimes it's behavior, and sometimes it's a mix of both. Maybe it's certain teachings and and, and doctrines that aren't healthy that actually lead to then poor and ungodly behaviors or divisive behaviors. There are a million and one ways in which people can be divisive in the church or amongst each other, And I I can maybe think of a few examples. This certainly wouldn't be exhaustive. But anytime someone holds erroneous views on core or very clear matters of God's word, uh, that becomes really problematic. And then I, I think also on the doctrinal side of things, whenever... Uh, we, a person elevates secondary doctrine to maybe we could call it primary doctrinal level. Uh, maybe it doesn't sound quite right because all doctrine is important. If God teaches something, we want to obey it. It's all important. But you have these core doctrines that like, if you get rid of that, you just lost the gospel. Or, and like, this isn't even up for debate. But sometimes what happens is you have some of these more secondary doctrines and, and people can hold those like they're more important than, than the primary ones. And they just beat and they beat and they beat and they beat that drum like this is it, this is it, this is everything. And it actually can become quite divisive. Uh, It seems often as well in church life that there can be people who have and push a cause just a little bit too vehemently. And you've probably been in a church somewhere where it's like, oh, there's the person with this cause or there's the person with that cause. And it's like that cause is their gospel. And sometimes those things can become divisive. Uh, I think anytime you have someone who has a my way or a highway mentality on anything in church life, 
So it's like, well, this is the best way to run the nursery, and it's this or it's nothing, or this is the best way to decorate, and this sound, and, and the people who are inflexible and don't bend. I mean, sometimes those things, those behavioral things, cause huge problems and division. Anytime a person is holding to dangerous and unbiblical theology, or they're, they're doing something, maybe their theology is actually sound, but they're doing something that's unbiblically divisive for the church, something needs to be done. Now, uh, some people, I think, get confused here, and they feel the need to divide from anyone and everyone whose theological views are, and practices are different from their own. I think sometimes people need the reminder, whoa, 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 hold your horses here. Uh, maybe some examples to consider. Let's say we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We could talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Is that up for debate? I mean, is that something that you read your Bible and get mixed messages on? Like the Holy Spirit could be God or maybe he's not. <laughs> no, you read scripture and that's not up for debate. Uh, but we could also talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and the nuances of that. Or, for example, we could talk about the sign gifts and have those things ceased. When did they cease? And how did they cease? And then have they forever ceased? Or could God in any way, shape, or form still use some of those things? And probably even in this room, we'd have people of, of some different persuasions. There might be some people sitting here and you go, yep, absolutely, they totally ceased. And, and, and those things are no longer for today, period. And then others who may, well, I actually kind of think that they maybe are a little bit. Or maybe another person would say, well, I believe God said that they would cease. And he didn't exactly say when or how. He just said that they would. And it would seem that they did at this time in history. And good godly people are all looking at scripture, coming to some different conclusions. Big difference between the deity of the Holy Spirit and some of the things related to his work. We could talk about end times and... Uh, the return of Christ and differing millennial views. Can we debate that Christ is going to come back? Like, is that up for debate? No. <laughs> like he said it again and again and again. It's going to happen. But we could get into the minutia of that and the order of events. And are you a pre-tribulationist? Or are you post-mill? Are you all-mill? And if you're not what I am, then we can't fellowship. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, is that the hill you want to die on? Uh, we, could, we could talk about Scripture and the authority, the inerrancy, the inspiration of Scripture. Is any of that up for debate? And is, is it up for debate in any way, shape, or form? No. Period. Like, that, there's not even a question there. This isn't even a discussion. We don't debate truth. We state it. But we could talk about translation philosophies and maybe which groups of, group of texts is the best or which translation philosophy is the best and good godly people could have some different thoughts on that. Furthermore, by the way, not everyone is going to read scripture and come to the exact same standards and the exact same convictions and application points that you come to on certain matters. And that's okay too. The church should pursue unity among its many, many differences. And we should unite around core, clear truth. And, and where maybe it's not so clear, we exercise graciousness and, and humility. And we fight for unity. However, some will unbiblically create division. And in that instance, what should you do? 
I mean, they're like, well, this is clear. You're looking at it going, that is so clear. Like that truth, this is not up for debate. And they want to make it like it is. Or their behavior is just ungodly and it's divisive. What do you do? Some will unbiblically create division. And in that instance, you must biblically create division. True biblical fellowship revolves around truth. You can't have fellowship if you don't have truth. If a professing Christian has deviated from the truth and won't return to the truth, then you, have, you don't have any grounds for fellowship. And if a professing believer rejects clear central truth, then according to this text, God's actually saying, well, in that instance, you have to reject him. Verse 10 lays out three actions that you are to take in such an event. Action number one, provide him with two corrective warnings. Uh, the first action you need to take is not rejecting the person. Oh, they're not like me. I'm compromised, walking away, done. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really godly. The first action you need to take is not rejecting the person. No, God says you actually have a responsibility to that person. You have a responsibility which will hopefully alleviate the, the need to even take such a drastic step. Verse 10 speaks of creating division after warning him once and then twice. Before you divide from someone, you have a responsibility to provide two corrective warnings. And, and that word warning seems to convey a, a couple of ideas. On the one hand, you would have a bit of an instruction idea, a correction idea. And then on the other hand, you would have this warning idea. Uh, the fact that you should do it twice, by the way, I think implies a degree of patience. Hoping that the person will turn away from their erroneous doctrine or behavior. They, maybe they don't even realize it. Maybe no one's ever sat them down and said, do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize how divisive this is? Do you realize this does not line up with God's truth? And this is not okay, and this is serious. We're not just going to push this under the rug. And the goal here is twofold, to return the twisted person from error, but also protect the church. You can't just cut someone off and, yeah, I'm not going to, we're done. That's not okay. The spiritual health and profitability of the person and the church is the goal. You can't cut corners and eliminate action steps like this first one that God commands. You have to have the conversations God wants you to have first. Assuming you do that, you lovingly warn your erring brother about his divisive theology or his behavior or whatever he's doing, and he's just digging his heels in. And he won't turn away from that. What do you do? Well, if he won't turn away from it, God says you turn away from him. Action number two, have nothing more to do with him. Verse 10 continues with those very words. After you warn him once, and then you warn him twice, you've given him a chance to, to turn back to truth or to repent of his sinful behavior. And it's no, I'm just going to keep doing it. You've done that, have nothing more to do with him. What does that mean? Well, that phrase is the translation actually of a single Greek word. That means to decline, refuse, avoid, or reject. And it actually, in some instances, can even mean to discharge, dismiss, or drive out. That's kind of some strong language, if you ask me. But that's what needs to be done. Again, why? Why is this so important? Because everything that God is driving at this text is, 
I want my people to be profitable. I want my people to grow. I want them to stay on the mission and live for what counts. And if they're spending all their time with divisive people, that's not going to work. Those, problem needs, those problems need dealt with, and my people need to stay focused on the mission, focused on the gospel, focused on sound doctrine, and living it out. There's a difference, though, between needing to divide and loving to divide. Some people in some churches, frankly, love to divide, and they divide on everything. And they make so many tertiary or, or smaller matters like they're the main ones. And you're not just like me. You don't do this like me. Go somewhere else. That is not good. Some people in churches love to divide and that's wrong. We only divide like this when we absolutely have to. And sometimes that's exactly what's needed. If, I think though, let's, if you're a godly person... And you have some really great godly characteristics about you. For example, uh, God has worked in you the character quality of compassion and tenderness and love for other people and care and sensitivity. Then this second action step could feel not only hard to do, but also not quite right. You know what I mean? Like, I, how is a, as a Christian, that just, it just doesn't jive with me. Am I really supposed to go that far? Which is why I think God doesn't end in verse 10. But gives us verse 11, which leads us to action step number three. Remember, you have good grounds for what you're doing. Verse 11 provides the assurance that that really hard action to take, the second one, that maybe doesn't sit really well or maybe even almost feels not quite right. Verse 11 provides the assurance that the action you're supposed to take in verse 10 is both right and appropriate. And the link between verses 10 and 11 is one of grounds or basis or reason. Maybe we could read from verse 10 to verse 11 like this. Have nothing more to do with him. Since you know that he's warped and sinful. In other words, you have grounds for what you're doing. And this is really important. You have grounds for what you're doing. What are those grounds? The divisive man is warped. That word warps means, means to be turned aside or perverted. He, he's either turned himself away from the truth or uh, perhaps he's even been turned aside from Satan himself, by Satan himself. The divisive man is warped and the divisive man is actively engaged in sin. He is sinning. He's holding his ground uh, with his divisive doctrine or his divisive behavior, and he's refused the, the loving, restorative correction that's been offered him two times. And maybe that's come from a, a pastor or a friend or you or whoever else. And to the best of your ability, you've tried to lovingly confront and be like, this is wrong. And he won't move. He won't be brought back to truth and profitability and verse 11 ends with the divisive man self-condemned. He put himself actually on the outside. You feel bad like, well, I'm the one who put him on the outside. No, no, no. Remember, fellowship centers and revolves around truth. And he stepped away from that. He stepped away from, from truth of doctrine or how that doctrine influences behavior. He's the one that stepped outside of that circle. He's self-condemned. Don't sit there feeling bad that this is somehow your fault. He has chosen the divisive path and he's refused correction. 
He's self-condemned. And so we have this grounds for this basis for have nothing more to do with him. It's the right thing to do. Maybe a practical example of that. Growing up, did you ever have a teacher kick someone out of class? Maybe a couple kids are sitting in the back row and they're cutting up and they're goofing off and this teacher is invested in his or her class and wants them to grow and learn and and get their subject matter so they can move on and be profitable and and, and keep moving forward in their education. But you got a couple kids sitting in the back row, cutting up, not paying much attention, and your teacher actually admonished them and said, hey, you two in the back, you need to quiet down and and listen up, or however they did it. But then those, those kids didn't change. They just kept going. They just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And they were distracting the whole class. And finally, the teacher put his or her foot down and just kicked them out. All right. You two, you need to leave my classroom. Go to the office. Whatever the case may be. Maybe that was you, by the way. Maybe you were the one that got kicked out of class and were cutting up and goofing off. But in that instance, why did the teacher kick the student out of the class? Because that student actually was hindering the, the progress, growth, and development and focus of the whole rest of the class. God wants you to be a forward-progressing Christian who's growing and learning and and focused on sound doctrine and applying that in everyday life. One who's profitable in good works. And sometimes that means that certain other so-called students or professing believers actually have to exit your life. And it sounds cruel, I think, as we think about a teacher kicking a student out of class. In fact, I would imagine, I don't even know if that happens in today's world. It sounds cruel for a teacher to kick a student out of class, but sometimes it's actually the most profitable thing that a teacher could do and the most loving thing for for not just the class as a whole, but also that student who got kicked out. Because God wants you to be a fruitful Christian. You need to reject divisive people and do that biblically. Uh, By the way, sometimes this needs to happen on the individual level. Maybe it's just you and another Christian in your life and this is not working (laughs) This relationship is hindering my forward growth as a Christian. I've tried to talk to you about it. This isn't going to work. And and maybe some some relationships need severed. And I think what's talked about here can also happen on the entire church level. Uh, You could find yourself in a church where the doctrine is not healthy. And core doctrines being compromised, clear scriptural truths are being compromised. What do you do? Well, I mean, you could just go with the flow. That would be wrong. You could leave. You could try to influence change. I think the question at the end of the day, whatever path you take, I mean, maybe say, hey, I should try to talk twice about this and see if change will happen. And at the end of the day, if it's like people want to hold down healthy wrong of biblical doctrine, you can't remember fellowship centers around truth. So at some point, you got to say, man, enough's enough i got to go be somewhere where I can be profitable and where I can move forward in my Christian life and, and grow with God's people because God says that's important. Because God wants you to be a fruitful Christian, you need to turn away from whatever hinders that. Worthless topics and divisive people. Probably not the funnest thing to do, but important nonetheless if we're going to grow and be the profitable people spiritually that God wants us to be. Would you bow your head with me at this time?